Chapter 7 William Grimshaw The Man The third spiritual hero of the eighteenth century whom I want to introduce to you is one who is not very well known. The man I refer to is William Grimshaw, the enduring minister of Haworth in Yorkshire. I can well believe that thousands of people are familiar with the history of Whitefield and Wesley who have not so much as heard of Grimshaw's name. Yet he was a mighty man of God, of whom the church and the world were not worthy. Hebrews 11.38 If greatness is to be measured by usefulness to souls, I believe there were not in England a hundred years ago three greater men than William Grimshaw. I will explain some of the reasons why this good man is so little known. For one thing, Grimshaw never withdrew from his position as a paid clergyman of the Church of England. He lived and died holding a church office in the Yorkshire Church Parish. He didn't start a new denomination or write any new articles of faith. He found as much liberty as he wanted within the boundaries of a parish clergyman's position, and with that liberty he was content. Such a man, by the very nature of things, will rarely emerge from comparative obscurity. No zealous partisan will chronicle his actions and movements. No persecuted followers will publish accounts of his life and thoughts. The person who remains in the ranks or behind the defenses will never be as noticeable as he who carries on guerrilla warfare single-handed or stands forth outside on the plain. For another thing, Grimshaw never went to London or preached even once in a London pulpit. He remained in his locality in days when railways, telegraphs, and penny postage were not even dreamed of. Within that locality, no doubt, he was a star of the first magnitude, but beyond it he was not heard or seen. We don't need to wonder that he was little known in his day and generation. The minister who never preaches in London and writes nothing must not be surprised if the world knows nothing of him. Like some of the judges of Israel, he may be great in his own district, but some of the tribes will hardly be acquainted with his name. After all, being famous is something that depends greatly on position and opportunity. It's not enough to possess gifts and powers, but there must also be the means of displaying them. For lack of opportunity, some of the greatest people are buried in obscurity. There may be great physicians who could never find a practice great lawyers who could never get a case, and great soldiers who never had a chance of distinguishing themselves. The main reason why the church has done so little honor to Grimshaw's name might be because it had so little opportunity of knowing him. William Grimshaw was born at Brindle in Lancashire on September 3, 1708. Brindle is an agricultural parish, containing about 1,300 people at this time, and is not far from the three manufacturing towns of Preston, Chorley, and Blackburn. Nothing whatsoever is known of the status and position of his parents. Who his mother was, whether he had any brothers and sisters, and what his father's occupation and employment were, are all points that are now veiled in complete obscurity. Beyond the fact that one of the church wardens of Brindle in 1728 was a certain William Grimshaw, nothing has ever been ascertained. We know almost nothing about Grimshaw's early life and education. The only facts that I can find about the first twenty-one years of his life are that he went to the grammar schools of Blackburn and Hesketh, 
was admitted to Christ's College, Cambridge, at the age of eighteen, and earned his Bachelor of Arts degree. However, his character as a boy and young man, and his conduct at school and college, are matters about which I cannot supply the slightest information because none exists. There is, however, no reason to think that he spent his time any better than any other young men of his day, or that he showed any concern about religion. In the year 1731, William Grimshaw was ordained a deacon, and he entered holy orders as a curate of Rochdale. He seems to have taken on this solemn office without any spiritual feeling, and in complete ignorance of the duties of a minister of Christ's gospel. Like too many young clergymen, he seems to have been ordained without properly knowing anything either about his own soul or about the way to do good to the souls of others. In fact, later in his life he deeply lamented that he sought ordination from the lowest and most unworthy motive, the desire to be in a respectable profession and, if possible, to get a good living. For some reason that we cannot now explain, Grimshaw's stay at Rochdale was a very short one. In September 1731, the same year that he was ordained, he became curate of Todd Morden and left Rochdale entirely. Todd Morden lies in a romantic valley between Rochdale and Leeds, well known to all who travel by the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway. Before the steam engine was invented, it must have been an incredibly beautiful place. Ecclesiastically, it is a district under the patronage of the vicar of Rochdale, and stands partly in the great parish of Rochdale, and partly in the equally large parish of Halifax. Here Grimshaw continued for at least eleven years. The eleven years during which Grimshaw resided at Todd Morden were, beyond doubt, the turning point in his spiritual history. It is much to be regretted that we don't possess much information about this period of his life. Enough, however, exists to throw some light on the way through which he was led to become the man of God that he was later in his life. It appears then, according to Middleton, one of his biographers, that around the year 1734, three years after he came to Todd Morden, Grimshaw began for the first time to feel deep concern about his own soul and the souls of his parishioners. A change came over his life and outward behavior. He laid aside the diversions in which he had previously spent much of his time, such as hunting, fishing, playing cards, games, and other amusements, and began to visit his people and urge on them the importance of Christianity, like one who really believed it. At the same time, he began the practice of praying in secret four times a day, a practice that there is reason to believe he continued for the rest of his life. There is nothing to show that his views of Christianity at this period were any but the most ignorant and uncertain. Of the distinctive doctrines of the gospel, of salvation by grace, justification by faith, free pardon through Christ's blood, and the converting power of the Holy Spirit, he probably knew nothing at all. He only had books of a very legal character, most of them given by Dr. Dunster, vicar of Rochdale, when he was his assistant. He had no friend to deal with him, as Peter did with Cornelius, or as Aquila and Priscilla did with Apollos, to show him the way of God more perfectly. Acts 18.26. However, he was honest in seeking light, and light came, though not immediately. He prayed much, like Saul in the house of Judas at Damascus, and after many days his prayer was heard. 
He used such means as he had, and in using those means, God met him and helped him. He had a sincere desire to do God's will, and the promise of the Lord Jesus was verified. Scripture, He shall know of the doctrine whether it is of God. John 7 17. The struggle between light and darkness in Grimshaw's mind appears to have continued for several years. While this delay might seem long to us, we mustn't forget that he was entirely without help from man, and he had to work out every spiritual problem unassisted and alone. Although the work within him went on slowly, it went on steadily and certainly. The illness and death of his first wife after four years of married life, leaving him a desolate widower with two children, appears to have been a powerful means of drawing him nearer to God. The careful reading of two most valuable Puritan books, Thomas Brooks's Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices and John Owen's Doctrine of Justification by Faith, seems to have been extremely helpful and settling to his soul. After several years of severe conflict, the final result was that Grimshaw no longer walked in darkness, but had the full light of life. John 8, 12. The scales completely fell from his eyes. He saw and knew the whole truth, and the truth made him free. He left Todd Morden a far wiser and happier man than he entered it. As hard as the training was, he learned lessons there that he never forgot to his life's end. Few men, perhaps, have ever so thoroughly verified the truth of Luther's saying, Prayer and temptation, the Bible and meditation, make a true minister of the gospel. Grimshaw's testimony to the power of the Scriptures at this crisis in his spiritual history is very fascinating and instructive. Like many others, he found the Bible almost a new book to his mind. Up to this time he had known it only in the letter, but now he became acquainted with it in its spiritual power. He later told a friend that if God had taken up his Bible to heaven and sent him down another, it couldn't have been newer to him. It is true that when someone becomes a new creature, old things pass away and all things become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Grimshaw's congregation at Todd Morden soon found that a change had come over their minister's mind. In the middle of his spiritual conflict and before he had found peace, a poor woman came to him in great distress of soul and asked him what she must do. He could only say, I cannot tell what to say to you, Susan, for I am in the same condition myself, but to despair of the mercy of God would be worse than anything. Another woman, Mary Schofield, had sought his advice in the beginning of his ministry and received the following answer Put away these gloomy thoughts, go into happy company, amuse yourself, and all will be well at last. At a later period, he went to her house and said, Oh, Mary, what a blind leader of the blind I was when I told you to get rid of your burden by telling you to live in pleasure and to follow the vain amusements of the world. Incidents like these, we can be sure, would soon be known throughout Todd Morden. True conversion, like the presence of Christ, is something that cannot be hidden. It would indeed be interesting if we had any authentic records of Grimshaw's history during these momentous eleven years at Todd Morden, but God has decided to withhold them from us. It is certainly very interesting that without the least collaboration with the other great evangelists who were his contemporaries, 
he arrived at the same doctrinal conclusions and took up the same line of action. It is an established fact, though, and well verified, that he was a complete stranger to Whitefield and Wesley the entire time he was at Todd Morden, and he never read a line of their writings. It is no less interesting to observe how God was pleased to detach him from the love of worldly things by taking away his beloved wife, whose loss he seems to have felt most intensely. The well-instructed Christian will see in all this part of his history the hand of perfect wisdom. The tools that the great architect intends to use much are often kept long in the fire to strengthen them and prepare them for work. The discipline that William Grimshaw went through at Todd Morden was doubtless very severe, but the lessons he learned under it could probably not have been learned in any other school. In May of 1742, Grimshaw was appointed minister of Haworth in Yorkshire, and he remained there until his death twenty-one years later. We don't know how it was that he got the appointment. At the present time, the patronage is in the hands of the vicar of Bradford and certain trustees. It's likely that his first wife's family had something to do with it. Haworth is a district in the parish of Bradford, about four miles from the town of Caithley. It stands in a cold, desolate, bleak moorland country, on the hills that divide Yorkshire from Lancashire. Running down from the Lake District to the peak of Derbyshire, it formed the backbone of England. None but those who have travelled from Manchester to Leeds by the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway, or from Manchester to Huddersfield by the London and North Western, or from Manchester to Sheffield by the Great Northern Line, can have any adequate idea of the rugged, weather-beaten, mountainous character of this district. Its valleys are beautiful, highly cultivated, and teeming with life and manufacturing activity. The upper parts of the country, though, are often as wild, steep, uncultivated, and unapproachable as a highland moor. At the top of one of the roughest parts of the mountain district lies the village of Haworth, the main scene of Grimshaw's ministerial labor. A hundred years ago, Haworth was about as rough and uncivilized a place as a minister could go to. Even Doomsday Book specifically describes it as desolate and waste. It's a long, narrow village built of brown stone, approached by a steep ascent from Caithley or Hebden Bridge. The street is so steep that one can understand that it must have been only recently that wheeled carriages went there. Indeed, there's a legend that when the first carriage came to Haworth, the villagers brought out hay to feed it, thinking that it was an animal. Such was the parish in which Grimshaw set up the standard of the cross. A less promising field can hardly be imagined. William Grimshaw began his work at Haworth in a way that was very different from his beginning at Todd Morden. He began preaching the gospel of Christ to his wild and rough parishioners in the plainest and most familiar manner, and he followed up his preaching by house-to-house visitation. His preaching was not confined to the walls of the church. Wherever he could get people together, whether in a room, a barn, a field, a quarry, or by the roadside, he was ready to preach. His visiting was not merely going from family to family to gossip about worldly matters, sickness, and children. Wherever he went, he took his master with him and spoke plainly to people about their souls. His whole life at Haworth was spent in this kind of work. Preaching repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ 
Acts 20.21, publicly and privately, just as the Apostle Paul did, was his one employment throughout the entire twenty-one years of his ministry. He himself describes his mode of action in the following letter, The method that I, the least and most unworthy of my Lord's ministers, take in my parish is this. I preach the gospel, glad tidings of salvation to repentant sinners through faith in Christ's blood alone, twice every Sunday the year round, except when I expound the church catechism and the thirty-nine articles, or read the homilies, which in substance I think is my duty to do in some part of the year annually on the Lord's Day mornings. I have found this practice, I bless God, of inexpressible benefit to my congregation, which consists, especially in the summer season, of about ten or twelve hundred souls, or, as some think, many more. We also have prayer, and a chapter of Scripture is expounded every Lord's Day evening. I visit my parish in twelve different places monthly, gathering six, eight, or ten families in each place, allowing any people of the neighboring parishes that please to attend the exhortation. I call this my monthly visitation. I am now entering into the fifth year of it, and the Lord has wonderfully blessed it. In addition, there are our funeral expositions and exhortations, and visiting our societies in one of the three last days of the month. Through the grace of God, I determine to make this my constant business in my parish as long as I live. In carrying on this kind of work, Grimshaw gladly availed himself of every help that he could obtain from like-minded men. He became acquainted with John Nelson, the famous Yorkshire stonemason, one of the most remarkable lay preachers whom Wesley sent forth, and he often received him at Haworth. He welcomed those few clergymen who were of one heart with himself, and he seized every opportunity of getting them to preach to his people. Whitefield, the two Wesleys, William Romaine and Henry Venn were among those whom he was only too glad to place in his pulpit. On such occasions it was not an uncommon thing to leave the church and preach in the churchyard in order to accommodate the crowds that came together. When the Lord's Supper was administered at such times, it was sometimes necessary for the first group of communicants to step out of the church to allow others in until all had partaken of the ordinance. In one instance, when George Whitefield was present, the numbers who came to the Lord's table were so great that no less than thirty-five bottles of wine were used. The effect produced by this new and fervent style of pastoral work, as might well be expected, was very great indeed. An interest about Christianity was stirred up throughout the whole district around Haworth, and multitudes who had never thought about it before began to do so. Grimshaw himself says, in a letter to Dr. John Gillies, author of Historical Collections of Accounts of Revival, souls were affected by the Word, brought to see their lost condition by nature, and to experience peace through faith in the blood of Jesus. My church began to be crowded, insomuch that many had to stand out of doors. Here, as in many places, it was amazing to see and hear what weeping, roaring, and agony many people were seized with at the apprehension of their sinful state and wrath of God. After a little while I joined with those people who were truly seeking or had found the Lord for meetings and spiritual exercises. These meetings are held once a week for about two hours and are called classes, 
consisting of about ten or twelve members each. We have much of the Lord's presence among them, and as a result, such meetings contribute much to Christian edification. The style of preaching that Grimshaw adopted was peculiarly well suited to the rough and uneducated population among which he labored. William Grimshaw was eminently a plain preacher. His first aim, undoubtedly, was to preach the whole truth as it is in Jesus. His second was to preach so as to be understood. To accomplish this end, he was willing to make many sacrifices, to crucify his natural cultivation as an educated clergyman who had been at Cambridge, and to be thought a fool by intellectual men. But he cared nothing about these things as long as he could succeed in reaching the hearts and consciences of his hearers. John Newton, who knew him well, has left some remarks on this characteristic of Grimshaw's preaching that are well worth reading. Newton says, The desire of usefulness to people of the weakest ability, or those most destitute of the advantages of education, influenced his wording in preaching. Though his abilities as a speaker and his wealth of general knowledge made him very capable to stand before great men, yet as his regular hearers were mainly of the poorer and more uneducated classes, he took it upon himself to adapt himself, in the most ordinary manner, to their ideas and to their modes of expression. Like the apostles, he did not like that elegance and excellence of speech that is admired by those who seek to be entertained as much as instructed from the pulpit. Instead, he chose to deliver his words in what he used to term market language. Although the warmth of his heart and the quickness of his imagination might sometimes lead him to clothe his thoughts in words that even a forthright critic could not justify, yet the general effect of his plain manner was noteworthy and impressive, suitable to make the simplest understand, and for a time to direct the attention of the most careless. Frequently a sentence that a delicate hearer might think is strange or common conveyed an important truth to the ear that fastened it in the memory for years after the rest of the sermon and the general subject were forgotten. Thoughtful hearers could easily excuse some departures of this kind, and acknowledge that, although he had a rare ability to bring down the great truths of the gospel to the level of the most common and lowly people, he did not degrade them. The seriousness of his manner, the energy with which he spoke, and the spirit of love that beamed in his eyes and breathed through his sermons were convincing proofs that he did not trifle with his people. I can give my judgment on this point, something in his own way, by quoting a plain and common proverb that says it is the best cat that catches the most mice. Grimshaw's faults, if he was justly chargeable with any, are very easily avoided, but few ministers have had equal success. While his language was more especially suited to the taste of his unpolished rustic hearers, his subject matter was calculated to affect the hearts of all, whether high or low, rich or poor, learned or uneducated, and those who refused to believe were often compelled to tremble. The way in which he conducted public worship at Haworth seems to have been as remarkable as his preaching. There was a life, fire, reality, and earnestness about it that made it seem to be a totally different thing from what it was in other churches. Middleton, in his biography of Grimshaw, says of him, In performance of divine service, and especially at the communion, he was at times like a man with his feet on earth and his soul in heaven. 
In prayer before the sermon, he would indeed take hold, as he used to say, of the very horns of the altar, which, he added, he could not, he would not let go until God had given the blessing. His fervency often was such, and attended with such heartfelt and tender expressions, that scarcely a dry eye was to be seen in his large congregation. According to the testimony of all his contemporaries, the life that Grimshaw lived appears to have been as remarkable as his preaching. In the highest sense, he seems to have adorned the doctrine of the gospel and to have made it beautiful in the eyes of all around him. He wasn't like some of whom the bitter remark has been made that when they are in the pulpit it is a pity that they ever leave it, and when they are out of it it's a pity that they would ever get in it. The same Christ that William Grimshaw preached in the pulpit was the Christ that he strove to follow in his daily life. He was a man of rare diligence and self-denial. No one ever worked harder than he did in his calling, and few worked as hard. He seldom preached less than twenty, and often nearly thirty times, in a week. In doing this he would constantly travel dozens of miles, content with the simplest food and the most basic accommodations. He was a man of rare charity and brotherly love. He loved all who loved Christ by whatever name they might be called, and he was kind to everyone in earthly as well as in spiritual things. In fact, says Middleton, his charity knew no bound but his means. As his grace and faithfulness rendered him useful to all, so his benevolent generosity particularly endeared him to the poor. He frequently used to say, If I will die today, I have not a penny to leave behind me. Yet he did not leave the world in debt, for he had prudence as well as grace. He was preeminently a peacemaker. The animosities and differences of men, says Middleton, furnished his affectionate spirit with nothing but pain. No labor was too great or too long if their reconciliation could be his reward. When he is met with cases of uncommon perseverance or stubbornness, he has been known to fall on his knees before them, pleading with them, for Christ's sake, to love one another, and offering to let them tread on his neck if they would only be at peace among themselves. He was, above all, a man of rare humility. Few gifted men, perhaps, ever thought so humbly of themselves, or were so truly ready in honor to prefer others. What have we to boast of? he said. What do we have that we have not received? We are saved freely by grace. When I die, I will then have my greatest grief and my greatest joy. My greatest grief that I have done so little for Jesus, and my greatest joy that Jesus has done so much for me. My last words will be, Here goes an unprofitable servant. That such a man as William Grimshaw would soon obtain immense influence in Haworth is nothing more than we might expect. Preaching as he did, and living as he did, we can well understand that he produced a mighty impression on his wayward parishioners. Sin was confronted, Sabbath-breaking became unfashionable, and immorality was greatly restrained. Like John the Baptist in the wilderness, Grimshaw shook the little corner of Yorkshire where he was placed, and he stirred people's minds to the very bottom. Hundreds learned to fear hell who did not really love heaven. Dozens of people were restrained from sin even though they were not converted to God. This was not all, however. There can be no doubt that Grimshaw was the means of true conversion to many souls. 
Year after year, the Holy Spirit applied His sermons to the hearts and consciences of many of His hearers, and added to the true Church of Christ those who would be saved. In one single year, after burying eighteen people, He said that He had great reason to believe that sixteen of them had entered into the kingdom of God. One of Grimshaw's biographers wrote, Not long before his death, he stood with the Reverend John Newton upon a hill near Haworth, surveying the nostalgic view. He then said that when he first came into that part of the country, he could have gone half a day's journey on horseback toward the east, west, north, and south without meeting one truly serious Christian person or even hearing of one. But now, through the blessing of God upon his labors, he could tell of several hundred people who attended his ministry and were devout communicants with him at the Lord's table. And of nearly all the last named, he could say that he was as well acquainted with their various temptations, trials, and mercies, both personal and domestic, as if he had lived in their families. The extra parochial labors that Grimshaw undertook, and the difficulties that they brought upon him, his early death, and some account of his few literary remains, are topics of so much interest that I now turn to them.